This is In Conversation from Apple News Today. I'm Shamita Basu. Every weekend, we bring you deeper into the best journalism on Apple News. Nearly two decades ago, in the weeks after the September 11th attacks, President George W. Bush announced the United States was going to invade Afghanistan. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. At the time, the U.S. had widespread domestic and international support for this campaign. And the first few months were a success. The Taliban lost its grip on power and al-Qaeda was forced out of the country. But then the war didn't end. And as years went by, the U.S. lost sight of its objective, a strategy, a clear purpose in Afghanistan. Money and resources were wasted. Americans and Afghans died, including more than 47,000 Afghan civilians. The bulk of the war spanned three presidential administrations, with each president giving falsely positive reports to the public. From George W. Bush. Today, five short years later, the Taliban have been driven from power, Al-Qaeda has been driven from its camps, and Afghanistan is free. That's why I say we have made remarkable progress. To Barack Obama. The landscape has changed. We have removed our troops from Iraq, We are winding down our war in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda's leadership on the border region between Pakistan and Afghanistan has been decimated, and Osama bin Laden is no more. And then Donald Trump. Our troops have fought with unmatched valor, and thanks to their bravery, we are now able to pursue a possible political solution to this long, and bloody conflict. Despite the repeated promises that progress was being made, each one of these presidents and the officials in their administrations were well aware of the many red flags raised by their generals on the ground, the ones who said we were certainly not winning the war. The mismatch between what each administration knew and what they told the public was brought to light by reporter Craig Whitlock of The Washington Post. A few years ago, Whitlock obtained a trove of official documents and government interviews with people who played a role in the war in Afghanistan. Conducted for a project called Lessons Learned, in which they were trying to figure out what went wrong in Afghanistan so that the U.S. government could avoid these mistakes in the future. It took three years and multiple lawsuits for Whitlock and his colleagues at The Post to get a hold of these records. And now, after further investigation, Whitlock is coming out with a book this month called The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. You can read excerpts of Whitlock's book in The Washington Post on Apple News. In my conversation with Whitlock, we discussed in detail each administration's failures in the war and the ways in which they lied to the public. He explained how we got to this point of U.S. withdrawal and the Taliban's return to power. And the book is not yet out, but you have released some reporting um, based on these documents. 
And it really paints a picture of how the U.S. government misrepresented our strength in Afghanistan for decades. In your opinion, was this knowing dishonesty? Was this wishful thinking? Was this some kind of diplomatic strategy? Well, I think there was some wishful thinking, but if you go back and examine these documents over the years in contrast with what people were saying in private and their personal feelings during the years and what was being said in public by senior U.S. officials, there's such an enormous contrast. You can't help but come to the conclusion that this was intentional deception uh, designed to just make the American people think that the war was progressing and things were going well, when in fact, uh, many U.S. officials had already come to the conclusion that it was an unwinnable war. Uh, there are even some interviews uh, which show that there was a, a very calculated uh, effort to uh, put out misinformation or deceive the American people. For instance, uh, there was an interview with a, a, an official in the Obama White House at the National Security Council who said, you know, we always manipulated the metrics. And by metrics, he meant, you know, the measurements to show if they were making progress or not on the battlefield or with aid delivery, schools mm. being built, things like that. And he said, you know, this went all the way up to the president, that if the metrics didn't look like the way we wanted, that painted a, a happy picture of what was going on, they would they would change them around, they would redefine them and distort them because, you know, the end result was they wanted to tell the American people they were making progress, even when their own metrics showed the opposite. So let's go back to the Bush administration. What was the objective going into Afghanistan? The objective 20 years ago was was pretty simple. It was to respond to the attacks of 9-11 and prevent al-Qaeda from carrying out a similar attack. The military objective in Afghanistan was to try and go after Osama bin Laden and the al-Qaeda leadership and dismantle or destroy the terrorist organization. There was also, because Afghanistan had hosted bin Laden and al-Qaeda leaders, uh, President Bush said the other objective was to uh, degrade the Taliban's military capability. But he was careful at the start of the war not to say that the objective was to replace the Taliban government. He was saying they just wanted to weaken it. So that was it in the beginning. That was all. Uh, things changed pretty quickly in in the first few months. The Taliban regime uh, was displaced. It was uh, the Taliban leaders fled, and that left a big security vacuum in Afghanistan. But the original objectives, which were to try and eliminate or destroy Al Qaeda, were really accomplished within six months. By March of two thousand two. There was virtually no al-Qaeda presence left in Afghanistan. All of their leaders had been killed or captured or had fled to other countries like Pakistan. So at that point, once al-Qaeda was no longer considered a serious threat, what became the stated goal? Well, there really wasn't a stated goal at that point. And that's this critical moment when the war really begins to start to drift. And there were a few things going on. Uh, in Afghanistan, uh, the, the country was just a wreck. It had been through 20 years of war ever since the Soviet invasion in 1975. There was a, a very, very uh, brutal and destructive civil war in Afghanistan during the 90s. So this country had no functioning government. Uh, there was real fear that there could be a famine. Uh, you know, the buildings, the infrastructure were just shattered. So even though the initial war was successful in toppling the Taliban and chasing away al-Qaeda, you know, what was left was a, was a mess and a security vacuum. And the United States was, you know, responsible 
to a large degree for for helping the Afghan people. Uh, the problem was President Bush had campaigned for office when he first ran for the presidency in 2000 on what he said, no nation building. He had been very critical of the Clinton administration for using the military to try and stabilize and build up countries like Somalia and Haiti and in the Balkans. So Bush had promised the American people no nation building in Afghanistan, but that's exactly what it needed at that point. So in public, again, the the mission at that point just was left very, very vague, very unstated. And what about internally? I mean, are there any powerful testimonies that are in the source materials you're referring to that really stick in your mind about this particular point in the war when things were sort of adrift? Yes, there, there, there are several. There, you know, some of the documents we obtained were uh, thousands of memos that were written or dictated by former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, Rumsfeld, you know, I think people still very remember him as this very outspoken, self-assured uh, defense secretary. Mm. And in these public, these were those he, snowflake memos, right? Exactly. The, these memos were called snowflakes because at the Pentagon he dictated so many of them, dozens or scores a day, and then they would print them out on white paper and they would sort of drift down on everyone's desk because they would have to respond to them. So they. They call they called them snowflakes, but it was almost like a blizzard of them. <laughs> uh, but if, from a historical perspective, they're very valuable because you go back and you see exactly what Rumsfeld was thinking. And these have only been made public in recent years thanks to another Freedom of Information lawsuit that was filed by a nonprofit group in Washington called the National Security Archive. But they they open a real window into what exactly what Rumsfeld was thinking and doing day by day, hour by hour. Um, but if I could cite a couple of these snowflakes, so yeah, in public, uh, Rumsfeld was being, uh, you know, he was being very confident and saying, you know, we've been victorious in Afghanistan, we've destroyed the Taliban, and even though several months into the war, there were already questions about, well, are we going to get stuck? Is this going to be like what happened with the Russians, where they invaded, replaced the government, but got stuck in this quagmire for ten years? Uh, Rumsfeld would always mock people who who asked this if the, if the United States was going to be stuck in a quagmire. But his snowflakes show something completely different. Just a year into the war, he's sending a snowflake, a memo to some of his top generals at the Pentagon saying, uh, we're never going to get out of Afghanistan unless we have a plan to build up the Afghan government. And he ended the memo by saying, help. So he was already in private, very worried that the United States would get stuck, even though in public he was saying the opposite. And if I could cite another memo, this is almost my favorite. And this shows just how much at that point, the other critical factor was, you know, after the Taliban was toppled, the Bush administration very, very quickly turned its attention to a different country, to Iraq. There were already plans uh, underway to prepare for an invasion to topple Saddam Hussein. And it really, they took their eye off the ball in Afghanistan. Uh, and the, the best example of this is uh, one year into the war, there's another Rumsfeld snowflake, and he's recounting a trip he took to the White House, to the Oval Office, to meet President Bush. And he told Bush, he said, you know, our, our General Tommy Franks, who is the commander of all U.S. forces in the Middle East, uh, he's going to be around next week. Would you like to have a meeting with him? And I think you should also have a meeting uh, with General Dan McNeil, an army general uh, in Afghanistan. And according to Rumsfeld's memo, Bush's response was, uh, who's Dan McNeil? 
And uh, Rumsfeld said, well, sir, he's the commander of our forces in Afghanistan. And Bush says, well, why would I need to meet with him? I don't need to meet with him. And he was very dismissive about it. So again, this gets to the state of mind of the president himself. He had stopped paying attention to Afghanistan. He didn't know who his own commander was. He was already fixated on what was going to come in Iraq. You know, U.S. military presence there in the country, um, it also enabled a lot of corruption. Certainly over the years, an enormous amount of corruption. Uh, Part of the problem was we allied ourselves with some very unsavory characters uh, who were commonly known in Afghanistan as warlords. These were uh, militia commanders, essentially, who would dominate a certain area, a certain part of the country, or a certain tribe or or ethnicity. And over the years, because Afghanistan had been a failed state, it was really uh, run at the mercy of these warlords. And there, were, there was a coalition of warlords known as the Northern Alliance, which was opposed to the Taliban. And because we were fighting al-Qaeda and the Taliban had supported al-Qaeda, we enlisted uh, the support of these these warlords in the Northern Alliance. But you know, many of them were were war criminals, quite frankly, as well as thieves who kind of had plundered their own country for a number of years. But as the war progressed, we we were joined at the hip with these warlords. We enlisted them to join the new Afghan government. Uh, we enlisted them to help fight the Taliban. So these were our allies, and that really was at the root of the corruption that slowly but surely kind of engulfed the Afghan government. Let's turn to the Obama years, or as you say in your reporting, the fantasy of Obama's promise to end combat in Afghanistan. What was Obama's stated promise publicly, and how far removed from reality was it? Well, let's set the stage a little bit first. Obama comes into office, and Afghanistan had been, quote-unquote, the forgotten war compared to Iraq. Bush had really uh, been preoccupied and consumed by the debacle in Iraq, and Afghanistan had gotten short shrift. So when Obama came into office, he had promised in his campaign that he would you know, end the war in Iraq, but he would, he would fix the war in Afghanistan. Uh, and by Obama's second term, when he ran for office a second time, he promised the American people he would also end the war in Afghanistan and that all U.S. troops would leave by the end of his second term in 2016. Um, of course, this didn't happen, even though in public they, they kept clinging to a different story. The best example of this is at the end of 2014, in December of 2014, uh, there was a ceremony at NATO, U.S. and NATO headquarters in Kabul, in which they announced the end of the combat mission. Uh, they had, you know, a, a sort of like a little parade around in, 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 a, in a gym where they furled the flag from from the combat mission, and they said that the Afghan security forces were now taking responsibility for their own country, uh, and Obama promised an end to what he called the combat mission. He, in fact, had a, a famous statement in which he said he, the war in Afghanistan is drawing to a responsible conclusion. So, of course, he's delivering the message to the American people that, okay, the war is you know, all but over. Uh, he acknowledged they were still going to keep some U.S. troops here to serve as advisors. But the way he portrayed this is that the Americans would be sitting on the sidelines. They wouldn't be involved in the fight. They were there just there to advise the Afghans. Uh, none of this was true. As we report in the Afghanistan papers, uh, combat kept happening. I mean, it certainly wasn't as intense 
involving U.S. troops as it had been a few years earlier, but there were still thousands of U.S. troops there. They were still fighting and dying on the battlefield. Uh, They were in a combat zone. The Pentagon continued to give them all combat pay and combat decorations, and people lost their lives, dozens of people, even though Obama had said the combat mission was over. Uh, the, The point of all this is the public support for the war had been flagging. So Obama and his administration were really trying to create this narrative that the war had wound down, that there, are, there weren't any troops left. They certainly weren't fighting in combat uh, because he, he knew this, this would cost him politically. And, uh, but, but again, none of it was true. We continued to fight. And the most obvious way, most apparent way this was happening is we continued to carry out hundreds of U.S. airstrikes each year. Uh, and even though it had been fewer than during Bush's term or Obama's start of his term, you know, there were still hundreds, if not thousands of Afghans getting killed, civilians each year. And to them, of course, the war hadn't subsided at all. It was as intense as ever. Yeah, the other part of this is the fact that the U.S. invested so much money into training this army in Afghanistan. And yet, the way it's described in, in in some of these accounts in these papers is that the the military there ended up being terribly under-resourced, badly equipped, and corrupt. How is it that that happened? Well, that's right. So over 20 years, the United States has spent about $85 billion to train and equip the Afghan army and police forces. I mean, up until a couple of weeks ago, U.S. taxpayers were paying the salaries of all these people. This was really a proxy force that was paid for and trained by the United States. Uh, and again, in public, during the Bush administration, during the Obama administration, during the Trump administration, uh, White House officials, three presidents, and the generals at the Pentagon kept telling the public that the Afghan security forces were getting stronger and stronger, uh, more and more effective that they would be able to defend their country against the Taliban without U.S. help. That was the public message. But in private, in the Afghanistan papers, in these interviews we obtained, these army officers who were responsible for training the Afghans just gave these blistering uh, accounts of how badly it was going. There were just a number of reasons for this. But at its its core, the United States was trying to set up um, an army modeled on the United States Army, a very complex, uh, large organization with a lot of command control, expensive weapon systems, uh, you know, complicated logistics. But they were trying to do this with uh, Afghan recruits who more than 90% of them could not read or write. And we see this time and again in the interviews where the trainers would say, you know, it was impossible to train these people. Uh, not only could they not read or write, but many of them couldn't count. There was one interview with a guy named Jack Kim, who was the deputy director of training during the Obama administration. He said, you know, they, they, an Afghan recruit, he might be able to tell you the names of his brothers and sisters, but if you asked him how many brothers and sisters he had, he couldn't say four or five. He could just rattle off their names. Others, others didn't know their colors. So just something as simple as when they would hand out at basic training, hand out rifles or weapons, uh, they couldn't just uh, put a label on the weapon with their name on it because they might not be able to read it. So, how you know, when people can't read or write or count, how can you hope to train them to use, you know, advanced weapon systems or fight in the model of the U.S. Army? It was just a really, really difficult thing to do. Um, 
But even beyond that, there were just these enormous problems with corruption and a lack of motivation. Uh, we were spending so much money to build up the Afghan forces, you know, billions of dollars each year. You know, many Afghan commanders, you know, these warlords saw this as an opportunity to get rich, to line their pockets. So even though the United States was supposed to be paying the salaries of these Afghan soldiers and police, they, the payments would go through their commanders. And by and large, they would siphon off the money or just pocket it entirely. And so when you have a, an army set up like that, you know, it, it's not much surprise that when things got tough against the Taliban, they would often throw in the towel or defect or just give up. You know, this really became an unsustainable approach to trying to win the war. And U.S. officials knew it all along. You know, what's what's also notable is after 2014, so when Obama made that end of combat mission announcement, um, the years that followed were were very deadly for Afghan civilians. From the Afghanistan papers, you're reporting, you're sourcing there. What else did we learn about the atrocities committed by U.S. forces in Afghanistan? Well, you would see this again and again, too, that throughout the Bush years and the Obama years, and frankly, continued in the Trump years when the airstrikes grew even more intense, that uh, there would often be an airstrike. Uh, there would be claims of civilian casualties on the ground that uh, the U.S. Air Force uh, hit the wrong target. Um, and time and again, the reflexive response from the U.S. military uh, at the time would be, no, we were attacking terrorists. These were Taliban fighters. These were insurgents. And you would see this. There are a number of cases all throughout Afghanistan where U.S. military would insist they hadn't killed civilians, but in fact they had. Uh, but the Afghanistan papers show that, uh, again, put to lie this notion that uh, there were subsequent investigations that were kept under wraps that found that, yes, they were civilians. No, it wasn't Taliban. Uh, and But again, the U.S. throughout the war really tried to suppress the findings of these investigations. And not only are these individually uh, tragic incidents where civilians were getting killed, innocent civilians, but it was backfiring strategically on the United States because the Afghan people would understandably get you know infuriated by how many civilians were getting killed in the war by the United States or by their allies in the Afghan government. And so this really uh, reduced popular support uh, for the Afghan government and, frankly, for the U.S. military presence. And so even though many Afghans saw the Taliban as brutal, uh, as, as not uh, an ideology they wanted to support, uh, they hated the, the Afghan government and the Americans even more. So people who ordinarily wouldn't have supported the Taliban uh, ended up supporting them or backing them or sending their children to fight for them. Let's move on to the Trump years. How did the peace deal that was it was eventually signed in February of 2020? What what kind of trajectory did that deal set into motion? Well, in the end, as we know, not a very good one. There was a peace deal that was finally reached in February of 2020, where uh, the United States agreed to withdraw from Afghanistan. Trump said he would pull out all troops by March of 2021. Uh, of course, he he lost re-election, so he wasn't around for the end of that. Uh, but President Biden essentially agreed to abide by uh, pretty close to that timeline that you know the United States would withdraw. Now, the, there are a number of big flaws with this agreement. 
Uh, for one, the Taliban agreed it promised it would no longer uh, allow Al Qaeda into Afghanistan. But you know, there's not much evidence they've they've held up their end of the bargain to that. Uh, they also made a number of other promises about their dealings with the Afghan government and with civilians, and that they wouldn't attack uh, urban areas while the Americans left. Uh, so the Taliban hasn't kept their end of the deal. Uh, but the United States, uh, you know, Trump was committed to pulling out. So he kept drawing down U.S. forces. And uh, uh, Joe Biden was also committed to withdrawing. There was just a real uh, frustration with how long this war had lasted. It didn't have any popular support in the United States. So both Biden and Trump, you know, th this may seem strange, but their policies in Afghanistan were very similar. Both wanted to get the United States out of the war. And, you know, the Taliban knew this. They sensed that the Americans were leaving and that they sensed that they had that time was on their side and that, it, you know, as long as the Americans kept withdrawing, the Taliban was like, OK, we're not going to we're not going to fight the Americans anymore. We're going to limit our fight to the Afghan government. We're not going to do anything that might make the Americans change their mind, because we know as soon as they leave, we're strong and the Afghan government's weak. And it's just, you know, a matter of time till we take over. So they very patiently prepared for the moment when the Americans would finally pull out entirely. Uh, and that moment came this summer. Uh, and when that happened, the, the Taliban had really laid the groundwork for a, a pretty strikingly fast takeover of the entire country. Uh, and, and as we've seen, the Afghan government collapsed in short order and the Taliban took over. And that's how we are where we are. Was it strikingly fast? I mean, to, to you... Knowing what you know, having studied these documents and these accounts in the Afghanistan papers so closely, were you still surprised by the speed with which the Taliban was able to take over? Well, uh, yes, I was. I mean, I don't think anybody could, I mean, think about it, you know, in eight days to have a whole army, uh, a whole government just kind of evaporate and throw down their arms is, I mean, there aren't too many uh comparable cases like that in human history that happened pretty quickly. That said, uh, it was clear that the Afghan army and police force were, uh, you know, they were a rotten tree trunk, right? You know, it might look like a big tree that had cost $85 billion to plant and care for over the years, but at the core, there was, there was not much there, and it just took a little wind at the end to sort of topple it over. So it, it was clear from the Afghanistan papers that uh, the Americans knew that this colossus of an army and police force they had built up, you know, it was just beset by desertion, by corruption, uh, lack of motivation to fight for the Afghan government. And I think the best examples of this were a number of reports in recent months before the Taliban took over. Uh, the Taliban had really controlled the countryside and many Afghan police and army outposts uh, were surrounded or you know, they would give up. And you'd hear these stories about how the Afghan soldiers or police would say, look, we had no choice. We didn't have food. We ran out of ammunition. Uh, we hadn't been paid in months and months and months. And while that, you know, sounded tragic, uh, you have to remember the United States is still spending billions of dollars a year to pay those people and to equip them. So on one hand, it just didn't make any sense. Here's the Afghan army and police uh, having units surrender because they said they didn't have ammunition or food. Well, it wasn't for a lack of resources. The United States is still spending three or four billion a year to pay for their salaries, to equip them and to feed them. So clearly something's happening to that money somewhere along the way. It's getting pocketed by the warlords and commanders in Afghanistan and just 
leaving their own troops high and dry. But that really sums it up for you why I think the troop, the the Afghan army collapsed. You know, Craig, what I find so fascinating is clearly, as revealed in the Afghanistan papers, there was this ongoing attempt internally to document, to assess, to quantify whether the mission was going successfully. How come all of that introspection and all of those accounts didn't lead to some sort of change in action? Were the accounts being ignored or were they just never shared up the chain? Well, they were being shared up the chain. They were being ignored. But we see in the Afghanistan paper themselves time and time again where army officers or diplomats would say, you know, they would write up the report saying that, uh, you know, the Afghan army is doing terrible or, you know, we this unit isn't capable of taking over for security for this district. Uh, or I can't certify uh, that this brigade is ready to take over this province. And this would get sent up the chain of command, uh, the chain of command, but then they would get uh, sent back down or they would get reversed, that the commanders would say, the American commanders would say, nope, we're going to certify that they're ready. Uh, we're going to, we have to, we have to stick with our plan to pull out eventually. And we have to perpetuate this fiction that the Afghan security forces are capable of taking over. So this is documented time and time again, where at the lower levels, there were clear warnings, there were assessments, there were conclusions that things weren't going well, uh, that, you know, these, these warning bells going off. And yet the higher up the chain of command they went, uh, the more resistance there was to accepting it. So people knew, but they just, they didn't want to tell the public. And there, you know, none of the presidents wanted to admit that the war was failing. Uh, you have to remember when we went into Afghanistan, there was such popular support for what was going on. And the American people thought we had won this war uh, within six months. We had pretty much declared victory in Afghanistan by 2002. So what American president wants to be known is the one who lost a war that once had popular support and had been won. You know, nobody wants to admit that. Nobody wants to take responsibility for failure. Nobody wants to blow the whistle to the public on how bad things are. Everybody just kept covering it up and the war kept drifting along. Biden has also said, um, now that a few days have passed, he said that there was no way to avoid chaos when withdrawing. Would you say that's a widely held opinion, that chaos was unavoidable? Or did others seem to think that there was a path to a peaceful, successful withdrawal of U.S. forces? Well, actually, I think in that sense, Biden's sort of telling the truth. I think there was a fear there was going to be chaos. I think there wasn't much faith that the Afghan government would hold. I mean, the, the best case scenario was that the Afghan government might hold on for a few months, maybe even a year after the U.S. military withdrew. But you know, all along, dating back to Obama's first term, this was the fear that if we pull out, uh, the Taliban will take over and, and there will be a disaster, a human, humanitarian disaster. And how do we get out of this war? Uh, and that goes back to when Obama was talking about pulling out all troops by the end of his second term. And he wasn't able to keep that promise because he was worried about this chaos taking place. This is exactly the kind of scenario he feared. But the problem was, again, the, the presidents weren't telling this to the American public. They kept reassuring them that we were making progress and turning the corner. So I think in the end, uh, Biden may be right. Maybe there was no way to avoid that chaos that uh, this, this was going to get ugly at the end. The problem was 
that isn't what his predecessors had said. And that wasn't even what Biden had said just a few weeks earlier. Craig Whitlock, thank you so much for your time and for your reporting. You bet. Thanks for talking with me. Excerpts from Whitlock's book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War, are available now on Apple News. Apple News.